So this morning we're in the book of Colossians, uh, and we are discussing this issue. Paul is saying, I'll put this down over here. He says, put to death, therefore, the, the ungodly energy that remains in your body, and sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then he says, and also get rid of anger and wrath and malice and obscene talk and for that comes from your mouth. Um, don't lie to each other. And he goes on, he says, because you're being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. So it says, you, as you contemplate the greatness of Christ, put these things to death. And as you put these things to death, you continue to look at the cross and you put on certain qualities that build community, that build churches, that build families, that build relationships. And I mentioned five last week, compassionate hearts, uh, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, these qualities that, that, that build homes and, and build people up. In, in the Lord. And, and this morning we're going to deal with the issue of bearing with each other and forgiving each other. Listen, verse 11. Bearing with one another, and, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. You also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. December 1977, the Los Angeles Lakers were playing the Houston Rockets. In the middle of the game, a fight ensued, and the captain of the Rockets was a 29-year-old who was a first-round draft pick out of Michigan named Rudy Tomjanovich. And Rudy T., as he was called, was a peacemaker, universally loved in the league, a wonderful man, and so as the fighting continued, he started running from one end of the court to the melee. And there is a man named Kermit Washington who was uh, a troubled man. And he's been troubled since he got out of the NBA. But he, he, he was kind of a rough guy. And he saw, he saw this man running up. And he assumed that he was running up to participate in the fight, not to break the fight up. And so as Rudy came up, he was totally uh, defenseless. He wasn't thinking about the fight. Kermit Washington reached back and uh, he, he hit him, and this is just a picture of it, uh, caught him flush in the face. Rudy was running full speed. Uh, he fell to the floor. A pool of blood came out. People at the game said you could hear the crushing of his skull in the seventh or eighth row. It was that horrific. Uh, Rudy got up, and they put a towel on his face, and he said his first thought was, I think you broke my nose. And then his second thought was, I was having a great game. They took him to the locker room, started looking at him. The trainer became very uh, concerned, called in a physician. The physician took one look at him and said, call the ambulance. They rushed him to the hospital. He had broken his nose. He had fractured his skull. He had broken his jaw. And spinal fluid was leaking into his mouth. He almost died. He was in recuperation for four to five months. And even though he was 29, he came back and he had two all-star seasons. He was never the same. A few years later, he was asked about Kermit Washington and how do you feel about Kermit Washington and the issue of forgiveness. And this is what Rudy T. said, Rudy Tomjanovich, which I think is a great statement. He said, someone once told me 
that hating Kermit would be like taking poison and hoping someone else would die. I've always tried to remember that. It's a great statement. It's a, it really is a noble statement. And if you do research on the issue of forgiveness and you pick up some books or you go on the web, you'll hear things like that. We should forgive other people because if we do not, we will be crippled emotionally and even physically. Therefore, forgive. Or we say we should forgive people because we need to be released from the bondage that they've put in our lives. That's true. Or we need to forgive because if you don't forgive, there's a chance you might develop high blood pressure. Or you might become someone who has ulcers or a crippling bitterness. All those things are true. But when it comes to forgiving people, those are all what I would call common grace arguments that are known and affirmed by everyone. But as people who have been called into fellowship with the living God by the cross, we have a much higher reason to forgive. And that is we forgive because on a good Friday outside of Jerusalem at a place called the place of the skull, Jesus Christ was crucified. And that bloody cross has forgiven us of our sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on the cross, our Lord said, Father, forgive them. Now, I'm going to go over some things this morning that if you've been a Christian very long, you've heard many times. But my prayer is that, that God will let, them, let us really hear them with the intensity that, that they should be heard. So the Apostle Paul and speaking to the church at Ephesus, talks about not grieving the Holy Spirit. And, and he says to them, starting in verse 30, don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Then he says this. This is an amazing verse. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Wow. Just as. Just as. And then the Lord teaches us the model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, where we are told to pray in the fifth petition, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Jesus gives a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount when he says this. For if you forgive others their trespasses or sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Shorter Catechism, question 105, says this. What do we pray for in the fifth petition? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Answer that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are the rather encouraged or emboldened to ask, because by his grace, we are enabled from the heart to forgive 
others. In other words, we, we pray, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us because from our heart we are willing to forgive those around us. This is an absolutely unbelievable thought to me. It goes against everything that is natural. And this is what church, this is what builds community. This is what builds families. This is what builds marriages. And, and I'm talking about two words, and they're different words. And they have different meanings. And that is, we must endure or bear with each other, and we must forgive each other. If you have any grievance against someone, the Bible says, you must forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. So first, bearing with each other, and then forgiving each other. To, to bear with one another means, quite frankly, it, it means that we endure, we, we put up with others even when they fail to act differently than how we expect them to, to act. And we do this in light of the glory of Christ. If you have been married more than two weeks or three weeks, you understand you got to endure and bear with people that you're married to. If you have been a parent for more than two years, you understand you've got to endure and bear with your children. Now, the first two years, kids, are, they're, they're good, they're good. And then they learn to say, no, and mine. And all of a sudden you go, whoa, what happened to sugar pie? You know, she's gone. And, and, but you have to, bear. if you've been a friend with anyone in this room or in the worship center for more than a few months, listen, you, have, you, you know what it means to bear with people, to, to put up with disappointments. There's a verse, Proverbs 18, 24, that says this. It says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Or there's a friend who's more loyal to you than even your family. That's a somebody who sticks with you. They are not bandwagon friends. Bandwagon friends are with you until the going gets rough, and then they hit the eject button. But loyal friends are there when you're up and you're down and you're in and you're out and you're going well and you're singing or you're down and you're depressed. So I've never, I haven't told people this, but, but uh, this past January, the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl. They beat Darth Vader the New England Patriots, of 41 to 33. I haven't told people this. I have been a closet Philadelphia Eagles fan all my life. Okay. Now, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. My, my friends accuse me sometimes of being a bandwagon sports person. And they're wrong. Kind of. So, but see... If you're a loyal Philadelphia fan, this is time to celebrate. I mean, I, let me just, I didn't say this in the last hour. And I'm this, I don't want to, but, but I really admire fans that stick it out. And I am thrilled that the Gamecocks have had some bowl seasons. I remember a few years ago, some of, some of you weren't born, but your parents can tell you about it with great sorrow. There was a year when the Gamecocks were 0 and 11. Now, if you don't know sports, that means zero victories. That means torture. That means hit me in the head with a hammer. Every home game, there were 82,000 Gamecock fans in Williams-Brice. That's amazing to me. You may say, well, that's pretty dumb. That's beside the point. <laughs> no, they're, they're not bandwagon people. See, I don't want to be a bandwagon friend. Hey, I'm hanging there. Listen, people say to me, can you believe the number of divorces in our culture? And I go, hey, man, I am thrilled it's not more. 
If you get married and it's a contract and it's not forbearing and you look at your spouse and you say, I will hang in there with you until you disappoint me or don't meet my needs. I don't know why anybody that gets married that way gets married, stays married. I, 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 I don't. But when you get married under the banner of Christ and you look at that person and say, I'm going to walk with you until you die or I die. And if I have a bad day and come home, you're there. And if you have a bad day and I come home, you're there. And we're going to work it out. That's called a covenant as we honor and love Christ. Before, uh, forbearing is all about relationships. Just a couple of examples. My, my dad is wonderful. He's 93 next month. Uh, my dad and his father before him, as I grew up with my granddaddy, think that if you are, are, are not at a meeting before a 15 minutes before it starts, you are late. That You're late. And if you're there five minutes before, you just need to hang your head in sorrow. Unfortunately, I didn't get that gene. I think to be on time means if the meeting starts at 10, you walk in at 9.59 and 59 seconds. And it's created conflict, kind of sort of with my dad and me for, for years. And now that he's gotten older, he's worse. I'll take you, I'll go up to see him in North Carolina and say, Dad, I'm going to take you to a couple of doctor's appointments. That's why I came up here. And he'll say, good son, I'm glad you're here. Yada, yada, he doesn't drive anymore. So his appointment is at, uh, at, at 9.30. And the doctor is 25 minutes away. And so we're sitting there having breakfast at 7.30. Well, we better get ready to go. We need to leave at 8 o'clock. I said, Dad, you're supposed at 9.30. I don't care. I want to be on time. He said, now he's got to be there 45 minutes to an hour beforehand. Not being critical of physicians or anything, but I don't, my favorite place to hang out is not waiting rooms in doctor's offices. But there, there I sit with my dad, 45 minutes, four, sitting there looking at The View or whatever's on TV and, and reading magazines. But, but he has learned to be forbearing with me and I with him regarding that. Next week is remember your three, bring your three to your house after the service. And, and if... Your family, every Easter has eaten barbecue. Man, we are barbecue people, vinegar-based barbecue. The right way you eat barbecue. We are barbecue-eating people on Easter, and you happen to invite a Muslim. They don't eat pork. You don't eat barbecue. You, you, because, because you're forbearing with it. If you, if you invite a Hindu, they don't eat beef. The best thing to do is just serve chicken and not worry about it. That's just what you do. That, that's called being forbearing. That, there's little examples that you tease out all the time because these things build community. There's a great quote in here from a book about the seven deadly sins I've been reading, but I'll just read part of it. It says that solitude intensifies uncorrected faults. A person's solitude appears to himself, and his solitude appears to be patient and humble and loving, when not interacting with others, which may explain in part why people are often surprised at the failure of public figures whom they have only known in the solitude of their speaking or, or professionalism. And he goes on and says this, and I think he's right. He says, qualities such as patience and humility and love can only be developed with practice in community. I've said for years, if you want to know how selfish you are, get married. And if you want to know how really selfish you are, have children. Community. But in community, you grow in the Lord. 
in this community where you forbear with one another and walk with one another. That's why. So I'm reading a book on, on monks for some reason, the monastery movement. And I didn't know this until just two weeks ago. I'm reading this book and it says that in most monastic orders, most monastic orders, you hear about people going into the desert and having the desert experience. He said, they did not go into the desert until they lived in community with other monks for two or three decades. In other words, you got to get community down. You got to get community down. That's what the Bible says here. This is all about building community, forbearing with one another. And he says this, forgiving one another. There's a little book called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis, and there's five chap, a five-page five chapter on forgiveness that just is absolutely phenomenal. And I put the quote in the bulletin. Lewis says this, it is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, how can we do it? How can we do it? And then he answers it. He says this, only I think by, number one, remembering where we stand by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And number two, we are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions and God means what he says. So I read that and I go, wow, so, so, how, how do we do it? In Ephesians, Paul prays a prayer for the church in chapter 1. And he says, may the eyes of their heart be enlightened so they may know the hope to which they are called. Or the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now listen, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Okay, listen. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? How do you do it? Let me tell you how you do it. If you have trusted Christ by faith and you've received the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of the living God gives you the same type of power to live the Christian life that raised Jesus from the dead. So God asks you to do incredibly difficult things because the power of God resides in you. How do you do it? Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead, has seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, now resides in us. You are people who've called of God to do these things. It's, it's, it's amazing. So I'm going to talk to you very quickly about forgiveness. First of all, just some bullet statements to dispel what you may have heard in, in my opinion. So first of all, people say, well, I, I don't, I'm, I'm working my way towards forgiveness. You don't, you don't work your way to forgiveness. Listen, forgiveness is a commitment and a process. 
Okay? It is a decision and it is a process. Forgiveness says, I stand before the bloodstained cross of Jesus on March the 25th at 11.44 in the morning. And I forgive blank of blank. And 30 minutes later, you say, I can't believe that person did that to me. You say, now, now, now wait, wait. At 11.44, I forgave them as I stood before the bloodstained cross of Christ. You, you revisit it. And then three hours later, you have the same thought. And you, you go back to the cross and back to the cross and back to the cross. It's a decision and it's a process. It, it's just, it's just what, what we do. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily make you feel better, but it honors the Lord, and it will bless you in the long run. Another thing is, is I hear people say forgive and forget. There's a book written in 1984 by a guy named Lewis Smeeds from Fuller Seminary. It's, not, it's an okay book, not a very good book on forgiveness, but it's entitled Forgive and Forget. What, a, what an unfortunate title for a book. Listen, you don't forget unless you've got one of those things that, you know, Will Smith and Tommy Jones had in Men in Black, and they can forget. That doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Listen, God doesn't forget. Hebrews 8 says, the Lord says, I choose to remember their sins no more. God is all-knowing. He can't forget. It's a decision. You, you choose to do the right thing. So I'm going to give you just a few principles on forgiveness, just four. Hopefully we may have time for a closing comment. But listen, number one, in the area of forgiveness, I need to realize I am far more bent, curbing on myself, than I realize. David in the Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms, talks about the beauty of creation and the power of the word. And, and he says... By the word, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. And then he makes this incredible prayer. He says, verse 12, Psalm 19, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins or known sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then... I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my, house, my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my, mock, my rock and my redeemer. So, so, so David says this. He says, Lord, don't let presumptuous and known sins get dominion over me. God, do not let me stumble over my known sin. But he says this. It's amazing to me. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And, and David is saying, after you've laid before the Lord and you've searched your mind, and maybe you've asked your spouse and your kids and your friends to list your sins as they observe them, there are still hidden faults you don't know that can get you, that can trip you. So he says, Lord, in the purity of my, in my most pure of pure of pure moments, there are still hidden faults. So, so Lord, deliver me from these hidden faults and these known sins. I am more sinful than I realize. I need grace more than I realize. I love the old Puritan who said, 
Even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. Number two, as a walk of forgiveness, I'm going to just discard the right for immediate justice this side of eternity. People live with the consequences of their wrongdoing. In fact, the Bible says that God has established government, judges, the judicial system to reward law keepers and to punish law breakers. Romans chapter 13 verse 3 says this, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And yet there are times when we long for justice and we don't see it. And what do you do? You leave it with the living God who is a God of justice who will have a day of judgment. Now, I thought about history. History, you know, um, I thought of a guy named Mao Zedong who, who conservatively speaking, had 70 to 75 million of his countrymen put to death by starvation or a cruel man. And yet he died in his sleep. Where's the justice in that? I thought of Pol Pot, the dictator of um, henchmen from Cambodia who took a beautiful small country of 10 million and killed two and a half million people in the 70s. Just put them to death, just butchered them. Uh, I thought of um, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, uh, at least, saw the Red Army coming in to Berlin, knew what was about to happen, so he went to a bunker and he took his newly married wife, Eva Marie Braun, and he shot her and then he killed himself. There's some justice there. I thought of Benito Mussolini, the henchman from Italy who led his country into horrific war and he had a mistress who said to the patriots who were freeing Italy, I want to have the same outcome of life as my beloved lover, Benito Mussolini. A really dumb statement, by the way. And so they, they killed both of them. And then they hung them up by their feet in the town square and people spat on their bodies. Eh, there's some justice there. Saddam Hussein was executed. Okay. Joseph Stalin, who, who rivaled Mao Zedong in putting people to death, the leader of the Soviet Union, died in his bed with his daughter sitting there talking to him. The last thing Stalin did was he propped himself up on his elbow and he shook his fist in the face of God and cursed God and he died. But the Bible says that there is a judge who will judge all people. And so, so we, we relinquish ultimate justice to him. Thirdly, we are to respond to evil with good. Now, let me tell you, if, if you, read, you read these verses and you do, you, you, to me, they, they, they take your breath away. 
they're like, listen, listen, this is Romans 12. I'm just going to read some verses. Just bless those who persecute you. How do you do that? You have the power of the resurrected Jesus in you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes people won't receive you, but you you extend the hand. So if, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You say, well, what is the burning coal thing? Well, we have two interpretations. It either means that, that you'll burning holes, coals of conviction or you will comfort him. There's a warmth about burning coals, you know. But, but really, the, the, the issue is here, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow. I, I go, Wow. It takes my breath away. I was at a function with a member of our church recently, and I see him in passing and don't spend a lot of time with him. And years ago, he, uh, his wife left him for another man. Broke his heart. Broke his heart. Struggled, 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 as I would. Moved to another city. Turned her deaf ear to all the pleadings we had with her. She took up with another man. I don't think they ever got married. She had another child. She and her former husband had had a little girl. She had another child and another girl. I said, well, tell me me how things are going. He said, here's a picture of my daughter. She's about 19 or 20 now. Really, really pretty. He said, yeah, she's she's the joy of my heart. And he said, "Uh, have I ever told you that my wife had another child? I said, no. So he told me, yeah, she had a child. She's, I think this child's now eight, another girl, as I said. So how's it going? He said, well, she's, she's delightful. In fact, I, I take her on my vacations with my other daughter. Wife still won't have anything to do with him. He said, I just, I just treat her like she's my daughter. I was having this conversation at a wedding. And I wanted to take my shoes off. Because I was standing on holy ground. How can you do something like that, church? Because the resurrected power of Jesus lives in your heart and your life. I mean, that I was just going, what, wow. So I, so I, I look at this and I think, well, what do you do? You reach out. And, and you, you care for people. And if they're, you do everything you can to be reconciled. And you, because the resurrected power of Jesus lives in your heart. Fourthly, you trust the goodness of the Father. You know, the, the, the most noble-minded, wonderful, gracious person who doesn't know Christ has no concept of this. And let me tell you what the concept is. And that is that, that in, in the midst of our pain and difficulty and heartbreak and, and maybe false accusations and, and people won't be reconciled, in the midst of all of that, the living God, whose name is Abba Father, takes all that mess and in some way works it to, 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 to glorify his name and to bless us. I don't get it, but I believe it. 
And when I, when I lay down at night and I put my head in the pillow, when I've got these concerns going through my mind, I go, you know, Lord, I am so glad that I can, you've taught me to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You're in charge. You're God. I trust you. And I thank you, Jesus, so much that you said, you looked at some birds and you said, birds are wonderful, but you're worth a whole lot more than the sparrows and not a hair will fall from your head apart from your Father's knowledge. Wow. So God, I'm going to go to sleep now. Abba, Father, I'm going to sleep now. I pray for this person, that person, this person, this person. And, and, and I'm thankful that you can watch over them because I'm going to sleep, but you're not. You're not. I trust you. We have that confidence. If you come to Christ, you have the confidence that God is God. And it helps you sleep. It helps you forgive. It's just, it's just it's so sweet. See, the secularists who write these books, and they're good to me, they're good books, don't get this. They just don't get it. That's why our forgiveness is way up here. Not common grace. It's all about knowing Christ. And he says this very briefly. The next verse says, And above all these put on love, which holds everything together in perfect harmony. Put, put on love. It's like a belt that hold it all together. There's a wonderful book by Lewis, C.S. Lewis, called The Four Loves. And he talks about affection and friendship, affectionate love, friendship love, sexual love. And then he says agape, if you ever listen to agape love or agape love, the love of Christ. And, and his, he, he says this, and I think I have a quote up here. He says, the natural loves are not self-sufficient. Something else must come in and water and fertilize it. Come to the help of the mere feeling. If the feeling is to be kept sweet, and then he says this. He says, when God arrives, and only then the half-gods can remain. And in other words, if you understand the grace of Christ and you bring it into your friendships and into your marital life and into your affections, that, that, that it waters and it, it prunes and it just, it's just a sweet thing. That, that, that's why I meant knowing Christ is so liberating and it's so good and it's, you, you read, you walk with the Lord with an open Bible and a humble heart and God changes you. So this is such good stuff. Thank you for being, forbearing, and forgiving of me all these years. I thank God I have a wife who loves me in spite of myself. I thank God for friends who've walked with me, just been kind, turned a blind eye to my stupidity. Thank God for children that are kind. This may surprise you. I was not and am not the perfect parent. So far, I'm the perfect granddad, but I, that, that's still something. I mean, just isn't it a joy to be in the body of Christ with people who love and encourage and embrace because they walk in light of a bloody cross? So good, so good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day and thank you for the word of God. Thank you that you haven't left us to grope in darkness, but you've given us the light of life that's in Jesus. 
Thank you for the forgiveness of sins by the cross. Thank you that as we forbear with one another and forgive each other and walk in this way, this is, this is, boy, this is tough stuff, but we do it in light of the fact that our Savior said, Father, forgive them. And we don't do it in our own strength. We do it in the strength of the resurrected Jesus whose spirit lives in us. So this is good stuff. And I pray, Lord, for people here who've had to walk through the, the valley of forgiveness in issues that would make mine look like nothing. But get the glory, Lord, in our lives. And give us the joy and strength. Let us represent you in Jesus' name. Amen.